You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. If someone were to ask you, what is this church all about? How would you answer? Just to yourself. If someone were to ask you, what is it that drives and determines all that this church does? How would you answer that? This morning, I am excited to launch a four-part sermon series from Matthew 28. And I know Matthew 28 is a very familiar passage for many people if you've been in the church for any length of time because it's such an important passage for the church. But as we come to this, make sure you battle with any sense of complacency or familiarity with this passage and you don't just kind of try to to, to coast alone uh, along with this but but that your heart will be freshly engaged with this with this text this sermon series addresses what is the vital and central mission of the church what is the vital and central mission of this church of our church and that central mission that vital mission is to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ it is to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ this sermon series will establish that very purpose the very purpose for the existence of our church. It answers that question, what is our church about? It answers the question, what are we doing? It answers the question, why do we even exist? It answers the question, what is the difference that our church is seeking to make in this world? It is to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. The main task that we are given as Mission City Fellowship is to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. We do this under the authority of Jesus. We do this with the power of the gospel. We do this according to the word of God. We do this by the work of the Spirit. And we do this to the glory of God. Now that's a lot, and this sermon series is hopefully going to unfold and unpack that for us as we understand what it is that we're about. Yes, we hold worship services every Sunday. We think that's important. We preach and teach the Word of God. We have a small group ministry we call fellowship groups, a vital part of this church. Yes, we want to help people who are in need. Yes, we want to try to relieve suffering where we can. Yes, we want to stand for truth and we want to stand against injustice. Yes, we sing together. We pray together. We share meals together. But those things are not an end in themselves. They all serve the greater purpose of our church to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ under the authority of Christ with the power of the gospel, according to the word of God, by the work of the Spirit, 
to the glory of God. At the end of the day, what must drive and determine all that we do as a church, it is to make immature disciples. That is the template we lay on our church. If we look at all of the activities, if we look at where the money is being spent, if we look at all the things that we give priority to, if it is not ultimately to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ, we do not need to be doing it. This sermon series, hopefully, prayerfully, will demonstrate from Matthew 28 the role and place of worship in making disciples. That's what we're going to look at this morning. This sermon series will also establish the authority the church has to make and mature disciples. This sermon series will again demonstrate how we make disciples, and then finally, this sermon series will teach us and show us how disciples are matured. So, again... In Matthew 28, 16 through 20, we are given our marching orders as a church. Now, you probably heard this passage referred to by or as the Great Commission. Have you heard that, the Great Commission? This is something that the church has often used to describe what is contained in those verses, verses 16 through 20. Do you know what a commission is? Have you thought about that part? A commission is a group of people officially charged with a specific task or duty. We have been commissioned as a group, as a church, as a community of faith. We have been commissioned and charged with a specific task or duty. His church is to continue the ministry he began of seeking and saving the lost. That is our duty. That is what we have specifically been charged in. What Jesus began in his life and in his death and in his resurrection and will be completed upon his return until he comes again. The church is to be engaged in the continuing ministry of Christ of seeking and saving the lost. Now, we're different than Jesus because we're not going to die in anyone's place to pay for their sin. That's not what our job is about. Jesus did that. Jesus made salvation possible. Jesus brought about redemption. Our job is to go and proclaim that to all people. Making and maturing disciples is about evangelism. I'm sure you've heard that word before too. Evangelism. It comes that the word evangel, it means gospel. Evangelism means that we are spreading or sharing or proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and just even at the beginning, and what you're going to hear this morning, you're going to hear repeated probably many times through the course of this. But that's good because that's how we learn, just hearing things again and again. It helps us, okay? But, But there's an important point of clarification here. Evangelism 
is expressing the truth of Christ and the gospel to people in some form of communication. Okay? Maybe you've heard this before. This is this was especially when I was younger, this was a quote I heard all the time. Every now and then I hear it creep back up. This quote that says, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Now I understand the heart of that, but that's that's not that's not true. That's not correct. We certainly are to love others by our kind and generous and thoughtful actions. We certainly are to give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. We certainly are to come alongside people who are suffering, who are hurting, who are struggling. It is good to help remote villages find and clean water. Yes, we do those things, but listen, we have not evangelized until the gospel of Jesus Christ has been spoken in some communication. You cannot live the gospel. You can live in the way of the gospel, but you cannot live the gospel. We have to verbally tell people that who Jesus is, why He came, why He died, and what that means for their life. To evangelize requires that we use words to communicate the truth of who Jesus is and why He died, and to then call people to repentance and faith in Him. It's not, do we live in the way of the Gospel, or do we speak the Gospel? It is both. Kind and sacrificial and generous works are expressions of love from one person or persons created in God's image to another person or persons who are created in God's image. And when we do those acts of love and kindness and service, that may certainly open up opportunities to evangelize. But by themselves, doing those kinds of kind acts is not evangelism itself. Making and maturing disciples requires we communicate the gospel to others. We do this by proclaiming Jesus, who is creator of all and who is Lord over all, We proclaim Jesus and we tell of His life and of His death and of His resurrection and of His imminent return to all people everywhere. That is what we are commissioned. That is the task. That is the responsibility that the church bears. And everything we do must be tied to that. And all these other things that are rich and are part of the life of the church, it is ultimately about either making or maturing, or we might even add multiplying disciples. Making and maturing disciples is also not just about evangelism, but we use the word mission or missions. Missions, this is the different ministries and the different ways that the church and that God's people may proclaim Jesus and the gospel to people. These are the kinds of of church activities and ministries and Christian ministries that seek to draw people and then compel them toward Christ. And part of missions would also be planting new churches. So all of that, I'm just kind of trying to to, to give you as a way of introduction and some foundational things, is part of this commission to go that we're going to read in just a few moments. 
And so as a result of this series, it is our prayer that you will not only be able to answer the question, what is this church all about? But you will also be able to tell people what your part in that mission is. What your part in the efforts of making and maturing disciples. This is not a job just given to the pastors. This is a job given to the whole church. And each of you who are part of this church bring a unique gifting that is meant to serve and help the church do what God called it to do. So as we move through this, I hope you're seeing this is how I am part of what God has called us to do. This is my role in this of making and maturing disciples to the glory of God. It isn't enough just to know what the church is doing. We each need to know what our part is in that. How we are contributing to the church's mission to make and mature disciples. So with that as an introduction, let's read. If you haven't already turned to Matthew 28, go ahead and find that. And I'll begin reading in verse 16. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Pray with me. Father, as we heard your word, it is burning within us. I pray that it would burn within us, that we would hear what your charge is to your people and what your provision is for your people as we consider this commission. Lord, help us to understand. Help us to be filled with zeal. And this morning as we consider the relationship of worship to evangelism, help us to understand. We pray this, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Let me give you just a quick summary of chapter 28. We didn't read all of it, but verses 1 through 10, this is the account of Mary Magdalene and the other Mary as they were going to, to the tomb, to Jesus' tomb. Instead of finding Jesus, as they expected to find him in the tomb, they experienced an earthquake, and then an angel was sitting on the very stone that he had rolled away from the entrance. That would, that would shake you a little bit. What we are told in those first 10 verses of chapter 28 is that the guards seeing this, they were so overcome, they were so overpowered by what, what they saw that they fell over as if they were dead. They weren't dead, they just they were knocked out. They were overcome by the glory and power of what they, what they had witnessed. 
Then the angel addresses the women. He instructs them that Jesus is alive again. That the one that they are seeking, that they thought to find dead, is no longer dead. That he has risen from the dead. Let's just stop just for a moment. This, this is so vital that we understand what the angel said here. He didn't say that, that Jesus was just alive. He said he was alive again from the dead. There is no way to understand that other than that Jesus was physically dead. He was completely dead. That means his lungs no longer moved air. His heart no longer pumped blood. His brain synapses no longer fired. He was dead. And now he was actually physically alive again. His lungs were filled with air again. His heart was pumping blood again. The brain synapses were firing again. This angel is one of the first-hand witnesses that we have of Jesus' actual physical death and then resurrection. Jesus wasn't just alive again on some spiritual plane. He wasn't just alive in the hearts of His followers. He was physically, bodily alive at that specific moment in history, having been dead just prior to that. This is so vital to our faith as followers of Jesus Christ. This is so essential to the hope that we have and our confidence in following Jesus Christ in this life. The Christian hope is not in the immortality of the soul. The Christian hope is in the resurrection of the dead. And when we fudge there, where we miss that, we miss what is essential to the Christian faith. I wish we had more time to dig into that. But it's important that we understand that he came back alive physically at a specific point in history. And that speaks to what he continues to do in our life physically. That we are embodied souls. We are tied together. That is a holistic vision of who we are. And in eternity, we will be physical. We will have glorified bodies, but they will be bodies. I wish there was more to unpack this, but we're, <laughs> we're here for something else. But I just I want you to give thought to that. That the hope of the Christian is not in the immortality of the soul that we're existing somewhere in some spiritual plane. It is the resurrection of the dead that we are, that we are brought back to life physically is what the hope of Christianity is. So, on their way back, to the disciples, these women actually meet Jesus and they fall down and they worship Him. And in that, Jesus instructs them to tell the disciples that they need to meet Him over in Galilee, which was a pretty far distance from where they were. Verses 11 through 15, quickly, they give us an account of the guards who were bribed by the elders and by the religious leaders to lie about what actually happened to Jesus. Although the guards 
felt the earthquake, and the guards saw the angel sitting on the stone. They lied about it and told everyone that the disciples had actually come in the middle of the night while the guards were asleep, and they stole Jesus' body. So that's what's happening in verses 11 through 15. When we get to verse 16, we begin. it begins by telling us that the disciples made their way to Galilee as they had been instructed. Verse 16, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. We, we can see, I think, in this, the implications of the context of Jesus' commissioning service here. That he sent his disciples who were in Jerusalem, which would have been the center of the, the, the Hebrew faith, it would have been pre- predominantly Jews. He sent them to Galilee, which in Matthew chapter 4 we're told Galilee of the Gentiles. It was, it was filled with Gentiles. It was filled with non-Jews. That he didn't commission his, his disciples in Jerusalem. He sent them over to Galilee. Because he wanted them to understand that the gospel, that the message he was commissioning them with to make and mature disciples was meant for all people, not just their own ethnic race. I think we are to see that in the fact that he sends them to Jerusalem. He is now sending his people to all people, not just to a select few He's helping his disciples to look beyond their ethnic comfort zones to see the grace and truth that the Lord will extend to all people. And we find that just so many times later in the New Testament where Paul testified that it was in his very body, it was in his very blood that he tore down the walls that separate us, the walls that separate one race from another. He tore it down in his own blood, in his own body to make us one. Seems like we spend all of our efforts trying to rebuild those walls. That is the beauty that Christ sends us to the world to make disciples from every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue. And then we find this detail in verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Goes on, it says, but some doubt it. Now, Phil instructed me that he's dealing with that, but some doubt it next week. So I'm going to leave that alone and let you just kind of wonder about that. But we're going to look at the front part of that. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. I want to spend the rest of our time focused on this point, this one point. Worship is the heart from which evangelism and missions flow. Worship is the heart from which evangelism and missions flow. Upon seeing Jesus, they worshiped. Worship's a big word. In this particular context, it means something very physical. It means that they fell to their knees, they bowed their heads, and ultimately they, they prostrated themselves. They just they, they went before him. They responded to him not like he was an angel sent from God, but like he was God himself. Now, remember, these were 
God-fearing Jews still, they would have been raised with the Torah. They would have been taught the law of God. They knew what God commanded about having no other gods, about worshiping at no other no other graven image, about, about making sure that the Lord alone was worshiped. And here they are worshiping Jesus. This was not a response you would give to someone you simply respect as a great teacher. Or someone you admire as a philanthropist. Or someone you respect for their struggle and stance against injustice or evil. This act went far beyond those emotions and expressions. This was a bowing before someone who was significantly different. And a recognition of that. This was a bowing before the Lord God. That Jesus is God has been a settled issue for the church for almost 2,000, well, over 2,000 years. You know, in the first 300 years of the church, you can find, at least so far, we have found no one within Christianity who questioned Jesus' deity, who questioned that Jesus was God come in the flesh. Now you found people in those first 300 years of church history who were questioning whether he was human. Questioning, but that he was God was never questioned. We do not have any evidence of someone within the church questioning that. It was not until around 300 AD where a man by the name of Arius began to question whether or not Jesus was actually God. Arianism is the heresy that came out of that. And the church came together and vigorously and clearly refuted that that lie. And from that council of Nicaea came this creed. I believe or we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through Him all things were made. And it has been the consistent testimony of the church for 2,000 years that Jesus is God. And that's why the disciples bowed and worshiped before Him. This is essential to our faith. And when the disciples saw him, that's what they did. They worshiped him as God. Family, friends, a heart that does not worship the Lord Jesus is a heart that will not spread his fame or glory. A heart that does not worship the Lord Jesus is a corrupted heart that is covered in darkness. Last week, Pastor Phil reminded us that we are all worshipers of something. The question is not if you are worshiping. The question is, what are you worshiping? Because we're all worshiping in some way. If it isn't the true God, then what is it? For each of us, there's something that we bow to. There's something that we delight in. There's something that defines us. There's something that orders our lives and gives us some kind of meaning in our life and directs our actions. It is some way by which we interpret what's happening in our life. We're all worshiping something or someone. 
That has always been the problem. That was the temptation in the Garden of Eden. It was to supplant the Lord God as the supreme one to be worshipped with something else, with themselves, with their own sense of righteousness. And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. They exchanged the worship of the Creator for the worship of the creation. It gets to the heart of all sin. When we talk about evangelism, when we talk about missions, it is to come from a heart that is filled with worship of Jesus Christ. This morning, may we see Jesus for who He is. I want us to just for a few moments consider what He taught. Consider the way He cared for people. Consider what He said about Himself. And consider the incredible, miraculous things that He did. Just consider what He taught. The Scripture says, Jesus taught as one having authority. This was in contrast to almost all the religious leaders of the day, who when they would get up and teach, they would just be referencing other rabbis, other teachers, and saying, well, this one taught this, and this one taught this, and this one taught that. They would not teach as one saying, this is what it says and this is what it means from the Word. Jesus did that. And when Jesus taught, He laid out a counter-cultural way of life that just flew in the face of so much of what they thought God was about. It was a counter-cultural way of life where to live, you actually had to die. It was a countercultural way of life that you were supposed to love your enemies. You were supposed to bless those who curse you. You were supposed to turn the other cheek. You were supposed to go the extra mile. Countercultural. It was countercultural in that Jesus said, if you want to be great, you've got to learn to be a servant. If you want to be great in my kingdom, you have to learn to be the servant of all. It's not who serves you, it's who you're serving that matters. This was just so countercultural. It was not about power, it was about humility, it was about denying yourself in order to follow Jesus Christ. He taught unlike anyone else. He taught as one who knew the heart of the Father. And He communicated that. But we add to what He taught, how He engaged with people, how He cared for people. Just consider the women that He helped in His life, that He encouraged, that He he, he spoke to, that He showed truth to, and He gave them life to. The woman caught in adultery. Everybody else was picking up stones to hurl at her. And He stepped in and offered her grace and life. The woman at the well, that that she came because she didn't want to be there when everybody else was there. Because of the, the scandal in her life and the scorn that she would receive because of the way she had lived. Jesus engaged with her and addressed her heart. The woman who was riddled with disease, who thought if she could just touch Jesus' garment, she would be healed. And when she did, Jesus knew instantly that something had happened. And he turned and he looked at her. This was amazing how he engaged with women. The woman who he let wash his feet. Consider the sinners and the the cultural outcasts that he helped and that he ate with and that he touched. 
In His love for people, Jesus delivered those who were oppressed by demons. He healed people of sicknesses and diseases. He brought sight to the blind and opened the deaf ears to hear again because He loved people and because there was a power upon His life because He was God. He hurt and cried for the people as if they were sheep without a shepherd. He hurt and cried for Jerusalem. Consider not just what He taught or how He cared for people, but what He said about Himself. These are staggering truths that, that Jesus said about Himself. Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Jesus said, I am the door and all people must enter through me. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd who loves the sheep and lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. All must eat from me. Jesus said, I am the light of the world that brings truth into darkness. Jesus said, I am the gate to the sheepfold. No one can enter except through Jesus. Jesus said, I am the true vine. I am the source of eternal life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And then Jesus made this astounding claim. I am the resurrection and the life. Astounding. what he said about himself. Consider Jesus' miracles. He turned water into wine. He healed a man stricken with leprosy. He raised a widow's son to life again. He restored a withered hand. He fed 5,000 people with only a few loaves and fishes. He raised Lazarus back, to back from the dead. He walked on water. He stilled a ferocious storm by speaking to it. I was thinking about this, you know, being having lived 28 years in western New York and being very glad I was not there for what happened around Christmas. They were saying because Buffalo is situated on the east top the, the northeast side of Lake Erie, one of the Great Lakes, that the wind was so fierce that the waves coming off of Lake Erie sometimes went 20, 25 feet high, but they were always at least 10 feet high. You're talking about a ferocious storm. Imagine Jesus standing to the side of that and saying, be still, and it just subsiding. Here was Jesus, raised from the dead by the glory and power of the Father. He's on a different level. This wasn't someone with just power over nature. This was someone with power over all things who existed outside of nature itself, but yet had chosen to become part of nature so that he might seek and save the lost. These disciples knew Jesus for three years. They listened to him. They watched him. And now they are worshiping before him. 
as we consider evangelism, as we consider making and maturing disciples, which is evangelism and mission, those words are almost interchangeable. As we consider evangelism, as we consider mission, let us be clear on who the Lord Jesus is and let, it, let Him fill our hearts with worship for Him. John Piper famously once said, Worship is the goal and the fuel of missions. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions or evangelism is our way of saying that the joy of knowing Christ is not a private or tribal or national or ethnic privilege. It is for all. And that's why we go. Because we have tasted the joy of worshiping Jesus and we want all the families of the earth included. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Evangelism exists because worship doesn't. There are people whose heart is, are not filled with the joy of the Lord who are not worshiping Him. That is a tragedy. It's an offense too. It is also a tragedy. And as long as that is the case, as long as there are those whose hearts are not filled with worship of the living God, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we are on mission to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to all people. And listen, ultimately, worship is the result of making disciples. Making a disciple is making someone who wholeheartedly worships Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 4. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. When the glory and wonder of the Lord fills our heart, we will want others to know the joy and awe of knowing Jesus as well. When Jesus becomes obscure in our own hearts, our desire and passion to bring Him to other people also lessens. To this end, I want you to consider another aspect of the relationship of worship and evangelism. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, Follow, follow this with me. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasures produce evil... For, listen to this, for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of a person's heart, they speak. One of the things I learned early in ministry, you want to get to know a person, sit and talk to them for 15 minutes and see what they talk about. Because what's most important to them is going to come out, usually. That's what Jesus is saying here. What fills the heart comes out of the mouth. 
See, Jesus, what Jesus is doing here in the bigger context of this is he's trying to help his disciples understand the relationship between fruit and roots. The fruit of a tree is determined by the roots. Good trees with good roots bear good fruit. Bad trees with bad roots bear bad fruit. And the takeaway from this is, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth reveals the heart, what's going on there, and then what's being produced. In the words of a person, we can see what they worship. To bring it over. This applies on so many levels, but but think about this in relationship to evangelism and to making disciples. When the glory of the Lord and the beauty of Christ and the power of Jesus fills the heart of a person with love and delight and awe, they will speak out of that worshiping heart to other people. A person whose heart is filled with Christ will speak of Him with joy and delight to others. Jesus taught us that what is most important, what is most treasured, what is most valued in the heart will come out in our words. What we love, delight in, and worship will find expressions in our conversations. So when we are visiting with our neighbors or we're talking to co-workers or we're engaged with family, we talk of Christ because He's what fills our heart. Certainly we can talk about other things. But what is most important is our Savior Jesus because He's glorious to us. Everything else pales in comparison. Everything else has to take a back seat. There's nothing as important. There's nothing as glorious. There's nothing that, that's as, that can rival Jesus. So that's what we talk about. We talk about Him. We aren't trying to persuade souls to come to our side. We are telling them about the glorious Lord of all things who became like us to save us from our greatest enemy, our sin. And to save us from the wrath of God against sin. We will speak of the one who thrills our hearts, who has our deepest allegiances allegiances, and our most passionate affections. That's who we will speak about. When we worship our Lord, when that fills our heart, it keeps evangelism and missions as a delight, not just a duty. It's not just a task that we feel is onerous. It's a delight because of who Jesus is and who He is to us and who He is in our hearts. Because we will then want all people to know our glorious Savior and to to experience His glorious salvation and be part of His glorious kingdom. That's what we'll want. This was a hard sermon for me this week because it challenged me. It challenged me quite a bit. What is it that fills our hearts? May I encourage you to do just a few things. I would encourage you to read through the Gospels early in this new year. And read with it with this prayer. Lord, I just I want to see Christ freshly. I've read, if you've read the Bible very much, if you've read the Gospels, it can just become so familiar. We just kind of skip over things. We don't really let it impact us. Go to it with this prayer. Lord, I want to encounter Jesus. Show me my Savior from your word. Just spend time in the Gospels at the beginning of this year. Amen. Let me recommend a couple books. 
The first is Christ our salvation by John Webster. This will give you a fresh insight into Jesus Christ. And it, it, it did for me anyway. It just fills your heart with joy and wonder when you read how this man just so faithfully portrays Christ for us. The second book, Behold the King of Glory by Russ Ramsey. Ramsey. This is a moving and inspiring account of Jesus' life. And you will, you will grow with enthusiasm and delight by reading this. I encourage either one. These are not long books. You can probably read these in, in a few days, well, depending on how fast you read. And this is our prayer that, that through this sermon series and through the continuing work of the Lord in our church, may He grow in us a true worshiping heart for the Lord that longs to see many others become true worshipers of the Lord. In so doing, we will be making and maturing disciples of Jesus under the authority of Christ, with the power of the Gospel, according to the Word of God, by the work of the Spirit, to the glory of God. May that be increasingly true of our church. And may we always come to our time of communion with that same sense of wonder and worship of Jesus. The one who saved us from our sin and who now carries us by His Spirit all in grace. Taking communion reminds us of the power at work in the Gospel while it opens us to newly experience that power in our lives. This is a holy moment. We eat and drink certainly to remember and never forget our union with Christ in His death and in His life, but we also eat and drink to experience His grace at work in us, keeping us in union with Christ. Let's pray.